Good morning, guys. Why don't you all stand and open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. If you guys don't have Bibles, I think we have some ushers that are looking to get you a Bible in case you need one. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 3 today, and then we're going to be done with that little segment in 1 Peter. And then what we're going to be starting next week is uh, we're already kind of within the Easter season, commonly known as Lent. Um, and we will begin a brand new series starting next week that's going to be in correlation with the Lenten season. And uh, we're going to be really just focusing on the last sayings of Jesus from the cross. It's commonly known as the seven words or seven sayings from Jesus from the cross. And uh, it's, if you've never read that or studied that or even thought about that, it's a really deep and a powerful like, season to really reflect upon what Jesus' death and resurrection are all about. So with that being said, we've been in a series in the book of Peter, making our way through it verse by verse. And again, you're welcome. We're almost done with chapter three. And uh, it's been a very lengthy season, but hopefully a rich one for you. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to read from verse 18 to 22. It's a little bit of a lengthy section right there. And then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to get to work looking at what Jesus has to speak to us today. So first Peter chapter three, verse 18 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which now corresponds to this, Now saves you, uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And this is the parentheses, confusing word of God. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But it is the word of God nonetheless. And hopefully... Jesus will help us to be able to make it through some of the confusing parts where I'm sure if you read some of this, you're like, wait, what is he talking about? Spirits in prison, Jesus descending. What is he talking about? Exactly what we're going to look at here this morning. So I'm going to pray and we'll get to work. Jesus, we commit this time in your hands. We thank you for your word that speaks to us, that gives us life, that points us to who you are and your nature. And we want to live according to all that you have for us. So God, give us hope this morning and it's time together here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Um, one of the things I love about just going through the Bible, is, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is we're actually forced to have to like look at passages like this that normally would be really convenient and easy to just kind of pass over just because um, convenience, right? It might be a little bit tough. Um, but with that, I want to do the best that I can within a limited time that we have here today. Just try to unpack this, look at it in its whole context and hopefully make some sense of this. Um, but what I want to do before we jump in, I want to start with just a quick little intro. I have a little slide up here that has like two statements. And the questions that I want for us to think about is number one, have you noticed that the most helpful, compassionate, and wise people are often those who have suffered a lot? Next question. Have you noticed that some of the most difficult, critical, and cynical people are those who have suffered a lot? Have you noticed that? Right? So in other words, 
you have a lot of people that are suffering, and some come out the other end, and they're incredibly helpful, and they're the ones that you want to go to and talk to and have in your life when you're going through a tough season. But then again, there's other people that have suffered a lot, and they're the last person you want to talk to because they're judgmental, they're critical, they're cynical, they offer no hope, they suck life and energy from you. And the one thing that ties both of them together, ironically, is both of them have suffered a lot. But both of them have responded to suffering in different ways that have led to different paths. So most of you woke up this morning, I'm sure, asking, praying to God, God, help Pastor Brian to give us a syllogism. Jesus has answered your prayers. So I'm going to give that to you next. I created one just for you guys. So suffering will form you to become a bitter or better person. Suffering will form you to be bitter or better. All of us will suffer. Second like movement in this. All of us will suffer. Third movement is therefore we will all become better or better people. All of us. Just pause and think about that. Everyone in this room, we're on a trajectory. Every one of us in this room will suffer. Every one of us in this room will have to face this big question, how will suffering shape me and what will it shape me into? Not just simply in, you know, episodical moments in your life where, you know, you'll have certain outbursts of frustration or wrath or, you know, dealing with anger and stuff like that. But I'm talking the long haul. I'm talking the choices that we make now that set us on a course, that set us on a trajectory, that create a lifestyle for us that, you know, three years, five years, 30 years down the road, we become something that's shaped from that circumstance that we process or and or didn't process well. And with that, I think that brings us kind of to the heart of what Peter is describing here. And this is where I really want for us to think about it and focus on. Because what Peter does is he's writing to a community of followers of Jesus, as we've been saying for a long time. So if you've been with us, so you've already heard me say this many, many, many times. Um, but he's writing to a community of followers of Jesus that have gone through tremendous suffering. They're facing challenges and hardships and pushback upon their faith. And at the same time, they're trying to be faithful to Jesus and to his ways and to what he's called them to without becoming these cynical, jaded, angry, frustrated people that ultimately, in the end, will end up looking like Jesus. And so what now Peter does is he's not just simply encouraging them, hey, hold the line, stay strong, be good. He's not just simply telling them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But now what he's going to do today is going to point us ultimately to the template. All right, the template that we're to look at, the schematic, if you would. It happens to be a human, a person, and it's Jesus. And he says, I want you to look at Jesus because Jesus suffered too. And that's the title of today. So I want first to think about that. Jesus suffered too. I don't know how you think about Jesus or what type of privileged life he may have lived or didn't live. But what I want for you to understand is that Jesus went through incredibly horrific circumstances. And as we move into the season now, as we begin to think about the life, death, resurrection, and really in some respect, the ascension of Jesus, what we see with regard to Jesus that Peter, I think, wants for us to pause and just reflect and consider with regard to Jesus is that in the midst of Jesus' suffering, he makes certain conscientious decisions in the midst of suffering to press into God. And then this ultimately shapes a type of, you know, human slash God that Jesus is, and this is what Peter says ultimately saves you, but then in the end, Peter will then say, follow the life of Jesus. Follow the example, all that Jesus is all about. 
And this is what I want for us to think about. So as we look at this, I want to just kind of give a quick little outline. What we will do is we will take a look at basically the suffering and the victory, because I think that's what Peter wants for us to understand, is that, yes, suffering is a part of this reality. But also, so is victory. What is victory? And again, in the context of the life of Jesus, victory is his resurrection, his ascension, his inheritance of all that God has. And then what Peter's going to say, that those that follow Jesus don't just follow Jesus in this life through the moments of suffering, but they follow Jesus in the moments of this life suffering on through the suffering into the victory. So what is true of Jesus ultimately becomes true of his followers. And this is where really we derive our hope. And this is what I want for us to meditate and think about and consider. So we will take a look at basically three things. We'll spend the majority of time on the subject of Jesus. Then we'll spend a little bit less time on the immediate audience or the readers to whom Peter was writing to. And then we'll finish just with some final like encouragements for us to think about as people that are trying to make our way through you know, planet Earth in this life and try to make sense of all the challenges and hardships and suffering around us as well. So let's first of all jump in and take a look at the person of Jesus because Peter spent a lot of time. In fact, there's a lot of uh, movements within the passage here that I want for us to think about. I have it up here uh, for you to just go ahead and read, take a look at, but we'll primarily primarily be focusing on verses 18, 20, and then we'll skip on down to 22, but then we will go back and look at the other passages in between. So I want to just look at, first of all, just a handful of different like movements of what Peter has to say. So again, let's just jump right in, take a look at the text, take a look at verse, uh, what is that, 18, uh, the very first little phrase. He says, for Christ, for Christ. Just pause and think about that, for Christ. And I want to reflect upon some of these ideas. Christ. The word Christ, it's really easy for us, I think, in our modern, you know, habits of reading to just kind of glance over certain words. And we just, we, we don't absorb them for all that they're worth. The word Christ, you can, you can actually write the word king in there. In fact, if you want, you can do that. Just like, no, don't scratch it out, but just right next to a little marginal note, this is king, Christ. That's exactly what the word means, king. And I want you to just think about this. When we think of the concept of a king, we think of someone that is in a privileged, honored, high and exalted, high and lofty and untouchable per, uh, circumstance and situation. They're protected. They're insulated from the world around them. Not this king. This king. We're going to learn something about what he had gone through, what he had endured. And he's going to tell us that this king ultimately is, in what he does, is of incredibly profound beauty. And I was thinking about this. This is what we need more than anything else in this moment and in this hour is, is, a, is a grasp, a glimpse of the profound beauty of Jesus. Uh, there's an author that I like. He actually wrote a book that's called Beauty Will Save the Day. I love that phrase because it's true. Beauty will save the day. We live in a world full of anxiety and stress and ugliness. And, and I'm, I'm confident and I'm convinced no one will change my opinion on this, that the news media cycles – they, they play off of our fears because that keeps us coming back like a drip line to keep us like trying to figure out what's going on in the world today. What other type of panic stricken state is, is society in right now? And it keeps us coming back and we just get sucked into this like vortex. We don't know how to break out of it. And what that does, I think it kind of creates this collective anxiety and stress and fear and anger and frustration. We're all trying to find an enemy, a common enemy to hate on destroy and then we find ourselves divided because we have one segment of friends over here that believes this and we have another segment of friends that believes this and we're trying to figure out like i'm not even sure who my friends are anymore have you felt like that have you felt like this past two years i sure have constantly like non-stop and i think honestly what we need more than anything is this collective 
glimpse of the beauty of Jesus and what he's come to do. And this is what I think Peter writes to his audience, which, you know, for us, we are kind of a, an audience on down the line where we are reading this and we're trying to absorb the original contents of what he's writing, trying to write to these people. And I think for us, the number one is just to glimpse uh, the picture of this king, this king that has profound beauty. And he tells us, goes on the next little segment of the verse. He says, for Christ also suffered for sins. Also suffered for sins. I want for us to just pause and think about this. Now, I want to make a distinction because you and I, we suffer from sin. Jesus suffered for sin. There's a distinction. Oftentimes the suffering that we go through, not all of us, not all the time, the suffering that we encounter is, is oftentimes from either sin that we cause or we create or sin that has been done against us. There truly is a status of people that maybe have been sinned against. They would fit the picture of being a victim. That happens. Many people have been sinned against by someone else that have taken advantage of them or have done something horrible or wrong or abusive or destructive, and they are suffering as a result of someone else's sin, but not in a redemptive way. In other words, the suffering that you may be going through right now because of someone else's sin might cause incredibly great trauma for you and require years of therapy and prayer and counseling and interaction with people that have uh, gone through various circumstances as well and are able to help provide wisdom and counsel and uh, just friendship for you that's needed. It's all important. It's all part of the life, I think, I think sometimes, for us to process this type of stuff. But for many of us, again, our sin that we, that we suffer from is stuff that, that we have done, that we've brought about in our own lives, either by choices that we have willfully made, we've stepped into, or things that maybe we didn't really intentionally go into, but uh, as a result of our own choices, as uh, misinformed as they may have been, kind of led us onto a path of dealing with our own sense of brokenness and we're suffering for or from the sin that we have brought about but what tells us that jesus this king suffered once for sins another way to think about this is that jesus did no wrong because we're going to learn that in the very next little section here jesus did no wrong but he takes upon himself the responsibility for all the wrong Pause and consider that for a moment, that Jesus did no wrong, did not sin. Jesus is perfect. Like, literally, he has done everything that the Father, God, has called for him to do. He is a perfect reflection, representation of who God is, what God is like, what God does in this world. Perfectly reflects all that God is. And yet, Jesus suffers for sin. We're told in the ancient prophecies, in the Old Testament, that Jesus bears in his body suffering as a result of other people. In other words, truly his death is a sacrificial death. He is dying in the stead of, or he is absorbing the, the, the pain and the suffering, the hardship that other people have brought into this world and unleashed like a Pandora's box. And, and we all know that. We, we know that there are choices that you and I, we can make today. This is absolutely a terrifying thought, but sometimes we have to just pause and think about it. We can make a choice today that can literally set in course emotion that will maybe never be undone in this life, ever, and will cause and unleash an enormous amount of pain and hurt and sorrow in other people's lives, may destroy our marriage, our relationships, our children. It's possible. 
And that, that's, that's frightening, honestly. Like, and again, not to dwell upon that, but to focus upon the fact that this Jesus, this king, comes into this world and does something on behalf of people that have unleashed chaos into this world. That through him taking upon himself our chaos, he brings a sense of order. And he goes on to say, for Christ, this king, also suffered once for sins. And he goes on to the next little segment. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous. So the next little line in the passage here, the righteous for the unrighteous. This focuses on the idea, like I had just mentioned, that Jesus, who's the righteous one, he suffers for the unrighteous. He takes upon himself their pain, their guilt, their shame, their hardship, their struggle. He becomes basically a poster child of what happens when someone truly bears in their body. Now, look, I would suspect that if you are a parent or you've been married for any length of time, especially if you're a parent, you know what this is about. You know there are occasions, let's say, for example, that your child does something and, and you so love that child that you would be willing to take upon yourself the guilt, the shame, the pain, the hardship, the anguish, that whatever the choice or decision is made. That's what love does. But imagine that multiplied by billions upon billions of human beings that bear God's image that have somehow gone rogue. This is what Jesus does. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Is Peter goes on to give us some more detail. He says that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. This is God's aim. That through this act of what Jesus had accomplished on the cross was not just simply an act that we can like look at 2,000 years from now while we drink our coffees in a nice, comfortable you know, church on the central coast, enjoying life and so on and so forth, and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, hat tip to Jesus. That's amazing. Well, how rad is that? Like, no, not at all. Ultimately, it's to bring us to God, to bring us into this relationship where we are face-to-face with beauty itself, goodness, truth, the good, the true, the beautiful. That we come face to face with this. And it does something to us. It changes us. That in the presence of God, we then become like this God that is good and true and beautiful. That we, in turn, become good and do good. And truth tellers, not cocky, arrogant truth tellers that you're like this keyboard, you know, militia warrior typing away feverishly on Twitter or Facebook. Like, I'm going to tell them what's wrong with themselves. And it's like, dude. Like, chill. Like, number one, chill. Number two, take a break. Pull away from the keyboard because it's not helping you or the world at all. You may think you're a warrior for good, but you're, you're, you're not. And nor is it beautiful. It's not, there's nothing beautiful about that. Jesus is all of these. After one, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And he says that the act of Jesus on the cross, dying for us in our place, is intended to bring us to God. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church has this word that they use, and again, I think a lot of times it gets uh, a lot of bad publicity. It's literally the word uh, deification, or theosis is another word for describing it. Not deification in the sense that human beings become God or become like God in the sense by bearing his, his essence, but they become like God. Uh, a way to think about it is it's becoming God-infused in character and in person. God-infused in both character and in person. Think about that. Man, I'm going on 52 years this year, 52 years old. I've been a Christian for over half my life. And to be really quite frank and honest with you, I'm so oftentimes frustrated and disappointed with how little I've progressed. I'm really honest. 
Now, again, I don't necessarily dwell on that or beat myself up. You know, I don't think more than what I should. But I, I, there are times where it, it, it becomes acute for me. I get frustrated with myself. I get frustrated, frustrated with the ways that I'm acting or the things that I should be doing but I'm not doing or battles that I thought I had conquered or victory over that I had not conquered or had victory over or language that I thought I had dropped when I was earlier a Christian or vocabulary or words, phrases. You know, you get the idea, sometimes four-letter ones that, yes, sometimes they slip into my vocabulary and they are not ones that I'm proud of, but they are there. And I have to sometimes face the reality of like, oh, man, why? Why is, this, why is this here? And I know for me, as someone that's been walking with Jesus for a long time, that has devoted my life to preaching the gospel and studying the Bible and helping others, I, I have to at points just look at my life and be like, I wish I was way farther along than what I really am. I long for this God-infused life. I want to become like Jesus. I want those rough edges of my life to be washed away. And I want those areas where I can come across as, as abrasive and harsh and not kind and not good and not gentle to somehow begin to look more like Jesus. I want the life of God to become more part of who I am. In the Western churches, that the, the, the language of theosis or deification might be identified as sanctification. Or if you are a Pentecostal old, old school person, you're like the whole, being filled and sanctified with the Holy Ghost. Like that's the big idea. Like it's all the same thing. It's all the same terminology. It's all the same definition pointing to the same God-infused life. And this is what Jesus says. This is what God has done. He's come into this world. Jesus has come into this world. He's taken upon himself our brokenness, our guilt, our shame to bring us to God so that we can then be transformed and reshaped in the likeness of God. And then next little phrase as we are making our way through this, uh, verse 18, he says, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's important to really note, number one, a part of a theological, proper orthodox theological understanding of Jesus is that Jesus was in the flesh. He was a human being, just like you and I. Uh, the reason why this is important, because uh, you know, even though this might not be a common or popular myth in today's world, but in the, especially in the early centuries of the Christian church, the questions were being asked, like, was Jesus really like what God in the flesh? Or was he more of like a, like a ghost that looks like he'd gone through a lot of tremendous suffering, but it really wasn't like that. It was just, it looked like that, but it really wasn't that. Because this idea of like God, this Again, this privileged deity stepping into this world, taking upon flesh and bone, being subject to having to go to the bathroom, not being able to sleep well sometimes, having a back that sometimes might even ache, having hunger pains, having all the same types of stuff that you and I face. It's impossible. How can God subject himself to that? Well, the answer is Jesus. And it's part of the orthodox tradition of how we understand the scriptures that Jesus suffered in the flesh. Not as a phantom, not as a spirit. And again, brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. Jesus suffered too. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know who needs to hear that today. Not just hear it, but really imbibe it. Let it sit there. Let it come alongside you in the midst of your valley of despair. And let it become something that feeds and fuels your soul and breathes life into whatever despair you find yourself in the midst of. That Jesus suffered too he knows what types of pain this life brings about he knows the ache of rejection 
He knows what it's like to give your life to something so good and devote nothing but goodness and beauty and truth to all of these things. And yet consistently, over and over again, be misunderstood, rejected, and ultimately canceled. He knows it. He gets it. And then it goes on to say that he was made alive in the spirit. And again, this is kind of a, a belief that as he rose again from the dead, it was the spirit of God that gave him all that was needed and necessary for him. Verse 19, it goes on to say, as we make our way through this, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, again, I want, I want, to, I want to address this as, as best as I can. I'm going to look at this in the next little slide. But um, the, the, the main little segment I want for us to think about is that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He went and descended, went into this space where the spirits were. And again, you might be asking, like, who are the spirits and where do they live and what's going on? We'll talk about that in two seconds here. But the point that I want to make is that Jesus goes into this and announces something. What does he announce? We'll look at that in a moment. Last little segment on this, and we'll go on to the next little segment. Verse 22 says, And he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. goes on to say, With angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. And the big thing I want you to catch is, where is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of God, which means he's in a place of esteemed honor, privilege doing what bible actually tells us that he's praying he's interceding endlessly for you and i uh you you might even like without trying to cheapen it or make it sound kind of weird he's like rooting for you you can do this i give you everything that's needed i'm praying for you i'm cheering you on with the host of other people that have gone before and this this is an astounding thing for my for me to think about and again it's helpful for us to put into perspective every single person to whom peter's writing in this book right here is dead. Should be a shocker. But those to whom were faithful to this message, where are they? They're with Jesus right now. Right now. They're part of this audience that have been completed, made whole. Promises made fully good on. Yes, they suffered, but they also entered into victory. And I want to move on to the very next one. And we're going to take a look at the second little segment, and then we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts, and we'll go to the Lord's Supper. Uh, secondly, we begin to see that the suffering, the victory, uh, are for those to whom Peter was ultimately writing, uh, promised to Peter's immediate readers. So take a look at verse 19. I'll read through this real quickly, and then i really just going to look at verse 19 and 20 as a bit of context, and then we'll focus on verse 21. Listen to what it says. Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. We just read that. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saved you. So whatever he's going to talk about now, he describes baptism. Baptism is kind of like the hinge. So whatever he talked about prior to that, he's going to say, whatever happened, well, again, we'll talk real briefly about this whole thing of like Noah's Ark and spirits that are in prison and Jesus going down there. What in the world is he talking about? I'll get to that. Whatever all that was, whatever happened, whatever stories he's referring to, he's going to say, but baptism, baptism's kind of like that. That's the hinge. So these people to whom he's writing who have gotten baptized, had done something. They've, they've engaged, they've embraced something of whatever it was that Jesus was announcing or talking about by way of this action of baptism. So let me finish up the little segment here, and I'll just go on to a couple quotes, and we'll move on to the next one. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt. So the question is, does actually falling into the water at a baptismal service, that, will you get saved and go to heaven when you die just accidentally falling in the water? The answer to that is no. No. Just somehow falling in the water, just because maybe you were baptized at one point in your life, doesn't, it's not, we don't believe in what we, what some would call baptismal regeneration. But, in other words, the idea of like washing dirt off your body, which is what actually immersion in water is, uh, that's not an act that's going to save you. What needs to happen is something inside that embraces the life of God. And that's what he's going to really begin to focus on. In verse uh, 21, he goes on, not as a removal of dirt from the body, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is happening here? All right, here's, I want to read a quick little quote from a guy by the name of Dennis Edwards. He's a theologian and a scholar that has commented on this. And I was going to let his words, I think does a pretty good job um, summarizing this. Now, just real quick, he's, he's going to say that most modern scholars believe that what's happening here is a reference. So Peter's writing, first century, right, inspired words of God. But he's also writing with an, with an aware, awareness and a knowledge of other literature that's floating around the world at that time. There was a book. Now, this is going to get really crazy for some of you. You're going to just, just hold tight. Give me, give me like two minutes to explain it. There was a book called First Enoch. So some of you are like, you're already lost. Like, what the heck? All right, yes. Okay, there's a book called First Enoch that first century... Jewish readers would have been fully familiar with. Now, you might be like, I've never heard of First Enoch. Doesn't mean it didn't exist, number one. Number two, uh, it just means that we're just maybe not aware of it. First century readers were. Peter seemed to have been aware of this particular book. There's a book called Jude in the New Testament that makes actual reference to this book called First Enoch. And you might be looking in your table of contents right now, but like, I don't see it in my table of contents because it's not there. Uh, Protestant Christians don't necessarily identify the book of Enoch as a, quote, canonical book, meaning part of the original canon scripture. However, it was literature that was known. And it was in broad circulation. So hopefully that makes sense. Dennis Edwards said this, many modern readers are not familiar with the Jewish writings like First Enoch. The language and the imagery of First Enoch are so bizarre and unfamiliar with, uh, with while uh, it no doubt provides the background to First Peter chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, it hardly resolves the mystery of these verses. And some of you are like, amen, it totally makes sense right there. Uh, the original readers, likely more familiar with Enoch tradition than we are, would probably not have been mis- so mystified. He says, first, Enoch elaborates upon Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you're familiar with that, that's where it gets, gets so bizarre, guys. So, uh, Demons come down, they have sex with women, you're just like they have babies. It's, I'm telling you, it's crazy, but it's in the Bible, and it's what's happening here. If I had more time to talk about it, I would, but if you want to talk to me more about it, come talk to me afterwards, and I'll point you in the right direction or try to give you the best information I have on it. But it goes on to say, where angels take wives and they produce a race of giants. Some of you are just like, what the heck? Um, at one point, God calls upon Enoch to deliver a message to these fallen angels known as watchers. And this is where the reference is, that Enoch actually goes on an assignment from God to these watchers that are in prison, that are in Hades, in in hell, in the afterlife. And he announces to them, hey, victory. You guys aren't getting out of here because of what you've done was so bad. That's the story in in the quick nutshell. And it it seems like what Peter's doing, knowing this literature, he's like, hey, it's kind of like how when Enoch went to the watchers, and announced this victory message, it's kind of like what Jesus did. He announced his victory. Which baptism is sort of like the image of this. And this is where it kind of gets awesome. So, the believers to whom Peter's writing, they enter into this relationship with what Jesus has done through his suffering, his death, resurrection, victory, and ascension over all these powers by saying, 
I too will align my life with this risen Messiah, this good king. How? Baptism. <laughs> Baptism. By going underwater? Somehow, like, get me saved? No. But what it does, it becomes, I think, two things. Number one, it becomes an oath of loyalty, saying this is who I belong to. I belong to Jesus. My life follows his life into the grave, out of the grave, because, again, we always say this, so it's a joke. When we do baptisms, we do baptisms, not drownings, which means we, we lift you up. You're welcome. But the whole idea is to, to, to resemble what Jesus did in the grave, but then coming out of the grave. That's what baptism is a picture of, going into the waters, like going into the grave. It's cold. It's dark. It feels horrible. If you stay there too long, you will actually die. But we lift you out as a way of saying, this is what resurrection is all about. You have a new life, new future. So number one, it's a loyalty oath. It's a way of basically saying, I am loyal, and I want to be loyal to King Jesus because he's a good king who's been loyal to me. Secondly, it's a proclamation of victory over evil. Just like Enoch, he goes in and he announces, hey, victory. Jesus, when he arises from the dead, he announces victory. As if to say, death, you're not the victor. You and I, our greatest enemy right now, it's not cancellation. It's not sitting around a bunch of unvaccinated people. It's not getting the vaccine. It's not even war. Our greatest enemy is death. We will all face it at one point. Every single last one of us. But the hope of a Christian is the same hope that was given to Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus in this life through moments and periods and episodes of suffering, but knowing that is not the end, resurrection is the end. Just like it was the end for Jesus. New life is the end, just like it was for him. And the followers of Jesus in Peter's day, they created sort of an, an emblem or a picture, depiction of this, like street theater, you know, it's just a way of re-performing. We belong to Jesus, the king, by demonstrating the fact I'm going to get baptized. And I'll throw this little plug in here. If you've never been baptized, like, get baptized. Why? Why have you not been baptized? If you follow Jesus, and again, no, no guilt or shame, but just like maybe considered, maybe 2022 is the year that you will follow Jesus to demonstrate publicly your loyalty oath to him, but also at the same time simultaneously pro produce and communicate the fact that death does not have victory over you. Lastly, I want to finish with this final thought. The suffering and victory that this ultimately brings to you and I. Again, I want to read real quickly Dennis Edwards. He says this. I don't think I have it up on the screen. Just listen to it. He says, the focus is on the reality that Jesus, Jesus, uh, that the victory follows apparent defeat just as the resurrected life follows death. The passage focuses on salvation that has been secured by a Savior who was raised from the dead and possesses all authority over all celestial beings. So the big thing I want for you to just take away from this is that if you are in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, then what was true of him will also be true of you. That's the big E on the IHR. With that, I'm done. And as Dan and the team are coming up, I want to just reiterate why this is so profound. Because what was true of Jesus will also be true of you. That means that, yeah, you might have suffering. Yeah, there may be moments in your life where it feels profoundly full of despair. Feel very dark. 
what was true of Jesus will also be true of you, that that darkness and the death that followed that darkness in some cases, or in all cases, really, is not the end. Resurrection is the end. And this is the great hope that you and I have today in a world that's literally gone mad, that's deeply trying to find answers, trying to make sense of life, trying to discover some degree of meaningfulness and purpose and how to deal with anxiety without having to simply self-medicate or turn on a 20-minute you know, episode to just numb my mind from the pain and the anxiety and the worthlessness that I'm constantly feeling to just find a different way to live. Because remember, like I said, suffering will change you to either a better person or a bitter person. All of us suffer. And right now, all of us, we're in a path in this life. And that suffering's doing something to us. It's either driving us into the heart of this king who suffered with you. And there you will discover his comfort, his presence, his wisdom, his beauty, his goodness, and his truth. Or your suffering will lead you down an alternative path, self-medicating, trying to find alternate answers through TikTok influencers. Dear God, help us. And that will form you into a type of person as well. We gather on Sundays for three things. For the word, because it not only informs us, gives us wisdom, but also forms us. It becomes a basis that shapes us. We also gather for sacrament, meaning we create, as we gather here, a time to just pause and to partake the bread and the cup. It's something sacred, something we cannot do alone, on ourselves, by ourselves, on some individualized experience. You have to be together to do this. But it reminds us we're part of a family. We're a bunch of messed up human beings, really broken, really flawed. We all have our idiosyncrasies. We all have those areas that we are just deeply frustrated with and ashamed by. But we have a God that's deeply committed to us and our transformation. And that's where we anchor our hope. And lastly, we focus on the fact that the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the breath of God that breathes life, also brings renewal. That's what we need. 